Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a longtime friend, critical part uh, back in the early days when we were getting Advertising Week off the ground. I'm talking, of course, about uh, the incredible Linda Sawyer. And it is wonderful to see you, Linda. Oh, it's great to see you. And so nice to reconnect. Great. So we're going to talk about your entrepreneurial venture. And we're going to focus on that, if that's all right with you. Sure. Uh, which is Scura Style. And you've invented something new. You're doing something exciting. And best I can tell, it's working, which yeah. uh, I'm sure is quite thrilling uh, beyond belief. Um, but let's go back a little bit. Uh, we met when you were running Deutsch globally, uh, and I read somewhere that your interest in the sort of the broader advertising world goes all the way back to when you were a little girl and your dad. Yeah. And I'd love to start back then when you were a little Linda, if you will. Sure. Um, well, yeah, first of all, thanks for having me and love to chat with you. Um, yeah, when I was very young, I had a very unusual upbringing in that my dad, who was a package. Just, just say when it got all fuzzy there. Just, oh, say when, just say when I was very young again. Yeah. When I was very young, um, I had an unusual upbringing because my dad, um, who was a package designer and specialized in cosmetics and fragrances, he actually uh, left the corporate world. His last big job was at Revlon and he built a studio connected to our home and he had his own business. And I literally was so fascinated with what he did. And I would every night basically go into a studio and I would read these marketing briefs and then he would present to me all the you know, presentations that he would be giving to you know, deliver to those briefs. And in between though, he would talk to me a lot about like the dynamics in the meetings and the corporate world and politics and all these things. So my corporate education really began when I was in junior high school, which is quite remarkable. And so um, I had a total fascination with marketing. I loved, you know, beauty and cosmetics and all that. So I really thought that that's what I would end up doing and going into marketing and, and being in that world. Um, when I graduated, though, I ended up learning that there was this whole world of advertising that I really wasn't that exposed to. And what I particularly loved about it is that not only was there a whole obviously business marketing side, but being exposed in a very big way to creative people, which I love the whole creative process. So I had a big, big head start. In fact, I remember when I was interviewing for some of my first jobs, I could tell that they were a little suspect that I hadn't worked before because I had such a vocabulary of someone that had almost been in the business world. So I really had a leg up in a lot of ways. Fantastic. And I know you had about a 27 year tenure at Deutsch, but what was before Deutsch? Yeah, well, I started um, actually at a midsize agency, which is still around, Averett Free and Ginsburg. And I was on the Ponderosa Steakhouse account, very glamorous. And um, the good news about that, though, it was their largest piece of business. And so I was very much exposed to all top management all the time. And so it was a pretty amazing piece of business to work on, actually, because it was so fast paced that it really honed my skills to be able to adapt and react very quickly to things. But I got some very good advice early on from someone who said, you know, it's a great experience, but mark your calendar, no matter how much you love it, a year later, you should leave 
and go work on a very classical packaged goods piece of business so that you're not kind of pegged as someone in the fast food environment. So sure enough, I, I heeded that advice. And a year later, I went to the largest agency at the time, both in New York and the world, Ted Bates. And I worked on a very classical packaged goods piece of business, Uncle Ben's Rice. And I worked on that for over two years. And it was, I was on the white rice segment. So you can imagine that like it was, you know, so specialized and, um, you know, but the great thing about that experience was it was almost like getting my MBA. I mean, I spent as much time in developing advertising as writing points of view on their packaging and distribution and promotions. And so it was a really incredible experience. And then I had my fair share of rice and I decided that um, I wanted something a little more fun and glamorous. So I went to what was at the time SSCB Lintas and worked on CoverGirl. So I sort of made my way to cosmetics, which I had always wanted. And on that, I was in, responsible for the nails segment, all things related to nails. That's how they divided it, face, size, nails. And it was a lot of fun. You know, we would be involved with like writing the names of the nail polish colors and all this stuff. And, you know, it was a great experience. Um, but then I, um, about a year and a half into that, got engaged. And um, my husband at the time was based in DC, um, had a PR firm with a partner and I ended up moving there, which I thought was kind of like a very bad career move in a lot of ways because Washington DC was you know, quite underdeveloped as far as advertising agency business. But I ended up going to a really small place and it turned out it was a, an amazing experience because um, they really looked to me to help really you know, build out the agency in terms of with all the experience that I did have and bring a lot of like process and discipline. Um, but the other really fortunate thing was one of the accounts that I was running was an account called Ikea. And at the time, most people didn't know about Ikea. They were just located in Philadelphia and Washington, DC. And um, I loved that piece of business and really enjoyed working on it. And fortunately, my husband's business really took off and they decided that to be seen as a real credible, serious player, that it was time to move it back to New York City. So after a short year in DC, I moved back and I decided, you know what, instead of just going back to another big agency, I really loved the idea of going to someplace smaller where I could not only run a piece of business, but be part of like building an agency and its brand. So I started looking and um, lo and behold, Ikea contacted me and asked me if I would help them do a review and that they had decided that, you know, they had very, very aggressive expansion plans in the US and they felt that they needed an agency that was much bigger. And um, I said that, you know, while I was looking for a job, I could certainly help them. And so I consulted for them and I wrote the questionnaire I helped them go through all the submissions. And it was sort of ironic because a lot of the agencies that they were getting submissions from, I was interviewing at. And you know, they actually said, we'd love for you to run our business. And I said, I'd love to, but I really actually have to find the right home for me. And hopefully the two will converge. And fortunately, um, maybe not totally coincidental, but I had made my decision to go to Deutsch and they decided to move the business there. And that was actually, the first piece of business that I ran at Deutsch when they were a small agency, 40 people. And 
I remember at the time, Donnie's like, this is a huge opportunity. Ikea was at the time the biggest account and it was an opportunity to really, you know, bring in different kind of people and really, you know, um, develop, you know, new skill sets and all that. And so it was a very defining account for the um, agency and, and, you know, it started way back then. So you were probably what mid to late twenties at that point. I, right? I was, yeah, I was a uh, twenty-seven. I mean, I was a baby, and to have been given that opportunity was unbelievable. And talk about walking in that door at Deutsch that first time, Donnie, well, who's still yeah. around, still terrific, a great friend uh, to us all. Um, that was early days. Yeah. I mean, the irony was when I had been meeting with recruiters, they all were really surprised that I wasn't going to another big agency again. And I, you know, had a lot of opportunities and I explained my rationale and, you know, I'd read a lot about Deutsch and it seemed really interesting and exciting, but, you know, even in the things I read, Donnie sort of seemed like a polarizing character. And I was like, I have a feeling why they're going to love him or not like him. And, um, you know, he was actually the first person I met with there. And it was amazing. We completely hit it off from the beginning. And I think the thing that was most obvious was like, we just shared so much philosophically from the business standpoint. And it was so refreshing to me to hear someone heading up an agency talking more about the business side of the business and, and the business side of clients business versus just like great creative ads kind of thing. And um, when I told recruiters, I had made my decision to go there. They thought I was crazy. They were like, especially they're like their account management is so weak. Like you could go anywhere you want. And I said, well, you know, I have the opportunity to really develop the account management there. And it's so much bigger opportunity than just running a piece of business. And I also felt like, what is the big risk anyway? Like if I made a terrible mistake, I could always leave. So, you know, I joined the agency as a VP account supervisor. And, um, but it became very clear to me very quickly, given the importance of the account and the kind of, you know, opportunity the account represented for the agency that, I would have a bigger role from the beginning. And, and, it, and that's how it played out for sure. So you referenced it 10 years at Bates and some of the other early shops you were at, but back then it seems like there was an awful lot of emphasis on training mm-hmm. and really building the foundation. And I, I always wonder if we do that as well today as we did then, how much did that help you? And is my perception in this case right or wrong? Oh, it's absolutely correct. I mean, when you were at an agency like Ted Bates or SSC and Ben Lintis, there were very, very formalized training programs. And I mean, they put a lot of emphasis on that. And, you know, even as like things like on an account, you were expected at a pretty junior level to be presenting to the head of marketing. So there was like a tremendous preparation in terms of your presentations and all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, today, there just isn't the same level of resources, investment, time, and it just, it's much more like learn by being thrown in the deep end and, and those that are really good will like, you know, submerge and, and you know, emerge. Um, but yes, I felt like I came into Deutsch having had, you know, as I said, almost like an addition to great work experience, like incredible training. 
and some great work that I remember from those uh, IKEA days. That 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 period wasn't there. Or something our life stages that rings a bell. Mm-hmm. That was yeah, a big I mean, one. That was a big one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. We we did so many amazing campaigns for them, but there was one campaign, and it actually ran for a number of years, and it was called the Life Stages campaign. And you know, the, the basic insight it was that people really more than like from a demographic standpoint, it was more about a mindset of the stage of life that you're in, whether you're starting out your first new apartment, having a baby, um, you know, getting married, whatever it is that that becomes very defining in terms of the kinds of things that you're looking for. And so trying to talk to a very broad audience but with, you know, very sort of customized in terms of like, I can really identify and relate from the stage of life that I'm in. And what was so special about that campaign was that, you know, we we chose to show real humanity in the way that we portrayed these people and sort of talked about things that people didn't talk about or showed things that people really didn't. So, you know, it was the first time in mainstream advertising in the mid nineties that we featured a gay couple, two men that were, you know, buying their first dining room table together. We showed a woman that was divorced and she spoke about it in both a very vulnerable, somewhat scared, but at the same time excited about the future. Um, We showed an interracial couple. We had a couple that talked about having difficulty having a baby and, you know, getting pregnant. And so they were just, really topical, real life things. And it's amazing how such simple truisms just resonated and got so much press as well. It was incredible. Fantastic. And Donnie's always struck me as a sort of a real entrepreneurial spirit and a little bit of a cowboy, very Mm -hmm. much his own person. Talk about those early days as the agency was growing from, as you said, about 40 to a much higher number than that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Donnie was definitely always one to kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, be rebellious. You know, he was a a challenger and, you know, challenge convention. And, you know, whenever we kind of look at a lot of agencies and it seemed like somewhat sometimes a sea of sameness and, and considering we're all in the branding business, like, not every agency had a clear cut brand or point of view that was done. You know, it was like, he thought about the agency's brand as much as our client's brands and, you know, had a real vision and, and created a real culture and, and values as an agency that, and which as a result attracted a certain type of person. And, you know, it tended to be very entrepreneurial mindsets, people that love that, love business, a culture of accountability, um, you know, bold and daring, not afraid to, you know, challenge and do things differently. And if everyone else was zigging, it's okay to zag. And so, you know, we often found ourselves in the press and Donnie in a lot of ways became a go-to in the industry, but on a much bigger level than like the trade publications. It was, you know, if ABC or CBS was doing a story about something cultural, you know, they often ask for his point of view. So really stood out and made it a very special agency. And and back then when you were starting um, digital and all the things that we're talking about now, none of that stuff existed. No, it didn't exist. But, you know, it's interesting because I felt like we were always 
a bit of a step ahead of most of the industry in terms of evolving our offering because, you know, we always focus so much on, you know, the client's business results. And in order to achieve that, you, you had to be so current with like where the best way of reaching people. So, you know, we were one of the first agencies that did have a you know, more integrated model and, you know, brought in the disciplines of direct marketing. And we were one of the first, you know, non sort of, you know, interactive agency that had an interactive division. And so, and we always had a media department and maintain that when others, you know, sort of spun those off. So it was, you know, we really um, evolved over time, I think, uh, one step ahead of the game. And at that point, you were not part of the IPG family initially when you joined? No, no. We, we sold the company in uh, November of 1999. Okay. And how did it change? You know, the beauty is it didn't change much. I mean, you know, I think one of the reasons we were attracted to IPG was that they fundamentally believed in giving their agencies autonomy and they, they were very attracted to us as, you know, a, you know, a super strong, you know, well-run integrated agency that had a very strong brand and if anything, you know, they were smart enough to want to, you know, nurture that and keep that, you know, us autonomous and motivated to continue doing what we were doing well. So, you know, we always had a great relationship with them. I mean, you know, it, it changed more for people like in my position where at the time I was chief operating officer and it, you know, meant all of a sudden having to report, you know, to a public company and obviously conforming with a lot of that. But we, we were always such a well-run agency that, you um, they really, you know, were so great with us and kind of let us do our own thing. And the company expands. You open a usually successful office out in LA. Correct. Uh, very exciting. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was great. And for me, the great part too, was that I, you know, never thought I'd stay at an agency for 27 years. That's for sure. Um, but I had, the reason I did is because I have the opportunity to, grow and evolve my own role. And, you know, I remember at one point I was, you know, very good at account management. I, you know, I, I had many accounts under me, they kept growing, but I remember at one point saying to Donnie, like, I feel I could add so much more to the agency by relinquishing some of those accounts and focusing actually on our agency and, and, you know, growing our business and our, you know, um, our capabilities and bringing you know, the hiring, the right kind of next level talent and all that. And to Donnie's credit, because a lot of agencies, if, if your accounts love you, forget it. It's like a life sentence. It's impossible to get off of them. You know, he was smart enough to know like, you know, that it was a way to retain me and to keep me motivated to want to grow and stay there. And, um, and fortunately it worked out really well because I became the next CEO and it went from there for, that was over a decade and it was incredible. And at the same time as you're rising up the ladder, you're also raising a family. Mm -hmm. Talk about that and how you manage, you know, work-life balance and mental health and wellness are much bigger topics today yeah. than they were back then. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always preached that I do not believe in the word balance really, because I don't think at any given time there is much balance. Um, 
But what I think that was so important for me is that I surrounded myself with amazing people and that meant at home and at work. And so starting with my husband, who was always like an incredibly involved parent, um, you know, so that, you know, was like truly, you know, a partnership on that level. I had the most amazing nanny that I had for, you know, 25 years. So it was like having, you know, this built-in incredible support system. And then at work, I, you know, made sure I had incredible bench strength. And, you know, I think you have to really hone your ability to prioritize and multitask. And, you know, what I always say is, you know, figuring out where your time matters most is what's really critical. And so I just think that's where I figured out the right sort of, um, you know, juxtaposition of what, what was needed most of me at home and at work and um, pulled it off. No, you sure did. And you're also dealing at a very high level in an industry that certainly is improved, but still largely white male dominated. Mm -hmm. Talk about that, Linda. And did you ever run into anything that was difficult or unfair, even Mm -hmm. at your level, because you're a woman? You know, I mean, listen, I'm well aware that it's, it's been a huge challenge um, in the industry and, you know, lack of diversity has been a major, major issue. Um, It's funny because at Deutsch, except for Donnie and, and a handful of others, you know, we had so many women in senior management and because for so long, especially until we were acquired by IPG, we were a little bit in our own world, like our heads down, doing our thing. And it wasn't until I was both thrust into, you know, becoming CEO. So I had a lot more exposure to the outside, you know, world and the industry and then becoming part of IPG that I was like, holy cow, like I'm like one of the only women in this like position. I mean, I couldn't believe when I would walk in a board meeting and I'm like, except for some of the people taking notes, I was like the only woman. And um, I am very fortunate though. I have to tell you, um, not quite sure the combination of reasons, but I never encountered any problems. And, um, you know, I just felt like it may be in part because I felt like I belonged there and I felt very unapologetic about being a woman. And I, I think I also tended to find and work with men that gender wasn't an issue because my emphasis was so much always on performance um, and business results. And because the people that I chose to do business with and work with, uh, you know, there was simpatico there that it just sort of took gender out of the equation. Having said that, I have spoken over the years to many, many women in the industry that had major, you know, very legitimate challenges with that. And so, um, but, you know, it, it somehow, you know, I was able to just bypass that. And I feel very fortunate though, because you were, you were part of a great culture there. And I think a lot of that is goes down some of it, certainly to Donnie, but a lot of it to the culture you built Mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned it, but other great Dynamic senior women, Val, you know, Vonda, you you had some terrific, terrific people there. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, and so, um, you know, I think uh, obviously it was an absolute non-issue at Deutsch. I felt 
it was, you know, with dealing with management at IPG and in particular, Michael Roth, it's like, you know, absolutely gender was a non-issue. And so, um, you know, uh, but again, it's, it's a, clearly something the industry is still struggling with and working very hard at. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so let's uh, start to get into the entree of our conversation. Okay. Uh, somewhere, as I guess it was four or five years ago, you launched uh, something brand new and incredible. It's not often that you see someone at the top of their game in a position like you are uh, leave yeah. of, their own, of their own volition. Reminds me a little, there's a wonderful coffee place that I love in London called Bar Italia in Soho. And they have this great old picture. I love uh, boxing. Uh-huh. And they have this great, great, big, big frame picture of Rocky Marciano, mm-hmm. who was the only heavyweight champion who ever retired undefeated. Oh. For what you do, you did the same. You effectively retired undefeated, walked away, and started something from scratch brand new. How long before you launched did the idea start to fertilize in your head? You know, give us the origin story yeah. of Skura Style. So, yeah, I love thinking about it that way, that <laughs> I retired undefeated. Um, you know, about probably at least I'd say a decade before this thing actually, you know, really came to be. Um, I have always been a real home design enthusiast. I, I just love it. And, um, and in fact, you know, because Ikea was such a long-term client, just always loved being in that whole space. And on top of that, I have to also be a total clean freak and I'm obsessive about cleaning and neatness and all that. And, you know, what I sort of always observed and was puzzled by was the fact that the kitchen, every single inch of it has undergone so much innovation in terms of both, you know, design, aesthetics, and performance. And, you know, everything from these like very benign products like dish drying racks or paper towel holders, even garbage cans are beautiful and they perform so much better. And yet like this one item front and center, the kitchen sponge has been like trapped in time. It looks like so 1940s institutional, especially the green and yellow and blue and blue, which is what most people have in their kitchens. And it just was, you know, they were ugly, they smell, they're kind of disgusting. And I was just amazed. And um, I'm one of my best friends since second grade, um, her name is Alison Matz. She um, was also, uh, you know, had a very big career. She was in publishing. She was publisher at a lot of high profile consumer magazines at Meredith and Condé Nast and Martha Stewart Living. And we always talked about that one day it would be really exciting to kind of have a second chapter and do something together. So we would brainstorm a lot about, you know, different ideas. And one day I happened to like share this insight with her um, and she couldn't believe it because she was like, you know, I never thought about it, but I'm a total spongephobe and it's kind of crazy. Like, why is that? So we started getting together um, on weekends, you know, because we certainly couldn't do it during the week. And we, you know, really like started researching the whole thing. And we ended up learning that 
the reason not much has changed is because there is essentially a monopoly uh, with 3M that owns the market. And it was really interesting, too, because it was at the time that these other disruptor brands started emerging, like a Dollar Shave and Casper. And when we saw sort of the market conditions of those categories where a Gillette had about a 75% market share and Temper and Sealy combined had that kind of market share. And lo and behold, 3M has the same market share. We're like, wow, this is like a category that's been super sleepy and needs to be disrupted. And so we start, but we didn't know if we could solve for it. We just knew there was a real big pain point there. And so we started researching and we ended up um, realizing that 3M actually also owned most of the material supply in this country. And then in fact, the beautiful ideas we had for what this product could look like could not actually be produced on those materials anyway. And then we really had an aha moment where we were like, why would we try to make something beautiful anyway that's inherently disgusting with these materials. So we just basically went on a quest to find completely new materials. And I always say, I think because we didn't know what we didn't know, we just kind of kept pushing and challenging convention and eventually found materials that are so superior in terms of efficacy and allowed us to also create these like this beautiful product. Where does the name come from? Um, Skura style, Skura is actually a real Swedish word and it means to scour and scrub. And the kind of inspiration for that was um, when I was, you know, finally looking to find someone that could really help us with the product designs, I was actually connected through some of my um, key contacts at Ikea with a former big designer from Ikea who had done many of their very successful brands. And he's actually Swedish and he does all of our product design work and packaging. And he, um, in a lot of ways, serves as our brand muse. And we're very inspired by Scandinavian design from a standpoint of it being very clean and modern and happy and all those things. So um, we went through a laundry list of, uh, you know, brand names. And then we finally landed on this and it felt right for a lot of reasons. Fantastic story. So talk about that journey. You, you and your partner, both dynamic business women, no real scientific background per se that I can gather. How do you go about that process to start to figure out the science behind what you're doing? Because it is ultimately rooted in... <laughs> in science and in technology, you've created something new with new materials that did not exist. And I can tell you as a, as a customer, if you will, what would you call me, Linda, a customer? Yes, a very good customer. A customer <laughs> that it is better than everything else that's out there by a lot. And I also use, you'll tell me what it's called, um, but I use a, another one of your products on the grill. Uh-huh, the, the, heavy, the heavy duty scouring pad. Yeah, it's very scrubby, yeah. Yeah, very scrubby, fantastic. Yeah. Works yeah. Better, better than Brillo, and I'm a very big advocate of Brillo. <laughs> but I think your product is better than Brillo. It is, yeah. No, I mean, you know, we, it started with um, really, you know, here's the thing, from a, a very macro standpoint, we knew we hated our sponges, sponges and fundamentally we suspected most people did. What's fascinating is though, 
most people, let's be realistic, are not talking about sponges. They're not talking about it at dinner, except for us. And, you know, we, um, but having said that, when we started to do consumer research and talk to people, you scratch the surface, there is a universal hate affair. So we didn't have to convince anybody that they don't like their current offering. It's just that they didn't have any alternatives really up until now. So that was kind of the first thing. When we started to try to understand what does make them so disgusting, there's actually quite a bit of research out there. And the traditional materials, which are mostly made of cellulose, that's what most common sponges are made of. That's the foam part. If you said, to scientists, try to invent a machine that creates more bacteria in the shortest amount of time than anything on this planet, they would come up with cellulose. It is so counterintuitive, but the average cellulose product is a bacteria breeding machine. It's it, millions of bacteria formed within days. And actually the bacteria is what causes the smell. And so people know their sponges stink. They don't necessarily connect the dots that it's the reason it smells is because it's caused by bacteria. And the other thing is that when we were doing research, it was amazing how many, there's like a continuum in terms of replacement where some people are like phobic and they say, I buy them you know, by the bag full and throw them out every few days because I find them so disgusting. But actually the vast majority of people are surprisingly complacent. And they'll tell you that they are, they'll be like, I sometimes keep them a month. And like they say it with like apology and embarrassment. I don't know why they're so disgusting. And microbiologists actually recommend that you throw out your sponge every week to two weeks because there's no proper way to sanitize them, but to, to actually soak them in bleach for four hours. And who's going to do that? So as we were researching all this stuff, we were like, we have to find not only materials that are better. So we found you know, we didn't invent the foam that we're using. We, it was a foam that exists in the market. It was actually being used more for commercial use, like in furniture and, you know, mattresses and things like that. Um, and this foam that we're using, it's just by nature of the fact that it's less porous and the kind of material it is, it just doesn't, it does produce bacteria, but not significantly less, like 99% less, you know, and because it dries fast, that's another reason that the bacteria forms with cellulose. They say soggy, where ours dry quickly. So, you know, that helps too with the bacteria. Then the scouring surface, which most traditional sponges trap, like you have last week's breakfast still in it, if you made an omelet, ours rinse completely clean. So that also contributes to a better process. And then we designed, you know, very much by design based on microbiologist recommendation to throw it out every week to two weeks, a monogram on it that fades with use within one to two weeks as a visual indicator to throw it out to make the whole replacement like a foolproof process. So it's very consumer centric. You know, it's, it's, it's truly like we had the aspiration to do everything like, you know, the highest quality bar in terms of performance and aesthetics. And you really see how the whole narrative comes together from what you used to learn from your dad as mm -hmm. a young, as a you know, 12 year old uh, and the outsized role that Ikea has played in your life. Yeah, it really has. I mean, it's, it's rather remarkable. You know, it's like, I always used to joke when I was at Deutsch, everyone else did too, that I had like blue and yellow in my blood, you know, the Swedish flag colors. And 
it's, yeah, it was such a defining account for Deutsch. And in a lot of ways, it's been so defining in terms of, you know, this next chapter for me. Amazing stuff. So you create this product. How do you then launch the product and go to market? Well, it was interesting because, you know, uh, 3M's monopoly is also basically at retail. I mean, they really dominate and, you know, and, and up until now, retailers have been, quite frankly, a little bit lazy in that they were like, well, no consumer's asking us for another sponge. Well, they're not asking because they don't even know to ask. You know, they just accept and, and that is what it is. And so, you know, the combination of wanting to kind of bypass that retail challenge, but also the fact that we wanted to make the replacement experience super easy. And we said, why not? have a subscription model. That was the beginning. You know, we were like, and we have, were again, learning from these like incredible, you know, um, brands like a dollar shave and Harry's. And it was like, you know, and there are a lot of subscriptions out there that quite frankly are gratuitous, but this really made sense. Like this was another way to make the ease of replacement. So it started with a pure play e-commerce model where we offered a subscription that you get a four pack every month or every other month. And um, about a year later, we also launched on Amazon. And the thinking about that was that, you know, we want to ultimately be where the consumer wants us, when they want us and how they want us. And there are some people who just only really want to buy on Amazon and that easy click. So we have quite a um, big business on Amazon as well. And then we decided that not everyone loves subscriptions. So on our own site, we offer, we started adding one-time purchases where you can buy bundles. We added these new products. You refer to one of them, the um, heavy duty scouring pad, this incredible dish towel. You might ask why dish towel, but believe it or not, you ask most people and they're like, you know what? My dish towel does not effectively dry my dishes. They, they're too thick, basically most of them, or if they're too thin, they get soggy. It's the perfect weight towel. We also have these incredible micro, these very light microfiber cloths that are really to be used as a replacement for, or at least an alternative to reduce your consumption of paper towels. And everything is designed to be, you know, super beautiful, a very sophisticated aesthetic and solve for these real consumer pain points. And then we, um, we also are on like some smaller websites like Food 52, which is like a beautiful curated website, something called Milk Street, um, Healthy Living. And then this past uh, Q1, we launched nationally in Sur La Tabla stores, as well as on their website. We launched on walmart.com in Q1, and we are in discussions with several big box retailers. So, you know, we are definitely, you know, the vision was always to be this omni-channel. Uh, brand that, you know, available in wide reaching places where, as I said, where people, you know, we don't want to change people's buying behavior. We want to make it easy wherever you want to get us. Fantastic. And have you gotten 3M's attention? Um, I'm sure we're on a whiteboard somewhere in a conference room. I mean, you know, we, you know, here's the thing, like the press that we get is, it's actually, it's an embarrassment of riches. I mean, we, we really are a press darling. I mean, we have not only the quality of the press outlets that have covered us, but it's what they say about us. I mean, it's gushing. I mean, we've had the Today Show, we've been featured on there several times, referred to as life-changing, that they're obsessed with our product. 
Bon Appetit refers to us as the official sponge of their test kitchen and the only one that they will use, their favorite sponge. You know, we've, it, it's just goes on and on. We just literally two, three weeks ago received uh, the best cleaning award for 2021 on the list for good housekeeping. I mean, it's just, so we, we know we're on a lot of people's radars, we believe. And, um, you know, because the reviews we get are over the top and that they do, they border on obsession from our customers. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times we hear from people, I cannot believe I'm using the word love in the same sentence as a sponge. And the other really interesting dynamic, which we never anticipated the degree of it, but you know, people love the authenticity of founders. And in our case, it goes beyond that. It's, it's like really rooting two, for two women taking on Big Sponge. It's like, of course it took two women to create a sponge you could actually love. And finally, like, you know, provide a product that delivers on everything that you're, you're promising and saying. So, you know, we, and, and the thing is our customer service and our emails are very familial. We always sign them happy cleaning, Linda and Allison, and we get a lot of like, you know, you go women, you fantastic. So, right, right. Um, you know, there's definitely a, a lot, like a whole dimension there that has helped our business actually. Well, you've built a community. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. Yeah, fantastic. And what's on the whiteboard uh, for you and Allison for 22, 23, 24? Are we looking just to get further penetration with the suite of products you have? Are there new products in development? What, yeah. what, what can we look forward to? Yeah, I mean, so we have a whole pipeline of new products. We have, you know, our trademark pending in everything surrounding the kitchen sink. So, you know, soap dispensers, dish racks, uh, other kind of, you know, scrubbing tools. And, you know, really, because our goal is to enhance the entire experience around the kitchen sink. And from an internal standpoint, we often talk about owning the real estate around the kitchen sink. So there's certainly product expansion, new products underway. We also want to continue, as I said, our distribution channels, you know, some big box retailers, uh, other we're in discussions with other type of retailers. Um, we actually are launching in our first international market next month. Um, and we have a lot of interest coming uh, globally from other things. We have some very exciting um, marketing things in the works. We um, have a planned television test. So we're going to be expanding our media um, outlets. We also, um, yeah, we just, you know, we're a very ambitious group and, um, you know, we, we, to clearly tapped a nerve and, um, you know, and as you said, I feel like we've really developed this incredible community of kind of brand zealots, which is fantastic. And, you know, going back to my career in advertising, you know, I, I've worked with so many amazing brands over the years, but, you know, there've been a lot of times that, you know, some of the biggest creative challenges is when you're inheriting a lot of business decisions that, you know, really make it difficult to do the right thing. And, you know, not to say that we're perfect and we clearly had our bumps along the way and made mistakes, but, you know, we really um, committed to the idea of doing like the right thing by the consumer and offering great performing products, products that 
beyond just the functional benefits, offer emotional benefits. You know, we believe we're in the kitchen business of kitchen well-being, not for the business of kitchen tools, where everything we do, we want to bring like joy to the mundane and make cleaning dishes as satisfying as getting them dirty. You know, we really believe in all that. So, um, you know, one, you know, just bringing joy to everyday things. I love it. And I think that notion of owning the sink, I think that's such a great positioning for you, not only for today, but for tomorrow. Yeah. Well, it keeps you very focused, you know, and it's like, you know, we've had people go, oh, have you thought about doing like, you know, uh, actual, you know, dishwashing liquids? And, and we're like, you know, th- there's plenty of good ones out there and we want to stay really focused. And we're, look, in many ways, we're still in our infancy. I mean, we've had tremendous success in a short amount of time, but, you know, it's really important to stay really focused. Fantastic. Well, Linda, this was such a joy to talk to you and to catch up and to see your smiling face. And I'm just so uh, thrilled for you. Oh, thank you. Truly a great mind. Linda Sawyer, thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Take care.